You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was very excited to have Gary Hamill on the podcast this week. Gary is an icon, a captain of industry, somebody whose work I've been following for decades. He's a genius in the field. I really loved how Gary talked about blowing up bureaucracy, and he gave some great examples around being more bold and leaning into driving change and don't sit and wait for senior leaders to tell you what to do. Human beings already had the most important capabilities our organizations lack. And while in some ways our organizations exceeded us, none of us individually can launch a spacecraft, but in other ways, our organizations were much less capable than we were. And I think that was largely thanks to this bureaucratic tendency to dehumanize work. This week, I'm speaking with the legendary Gary Hamill, one of the most influential business thinkers and writers working today. Gary is the author of several landmark books that have changed the practice of management and leadership around the world. His thought-provoking Harvard Business Review articles have been downloaded more than any other in the magazine's history. Fortune Magazine describes Gary as the world's leading expert on business strategy, and the Wall Street Journal has called him the world's most influential business thinker. He's been a faculty member at London Business School since the 80s. Today, we'll be diving into some of Gary's ideas in the book Humanocracy, which he co-wrote with Michele Zanini. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Alan. Thank you. So, Gary, I love how you, in all of your writing and teaching, you invoke the giants on whose shoulders you stand. And I thought it would be great if you could give us a brief history of management to lay the foundation for today's discussion. Sure. You know, most of us have grown up in and around organizations that fit a particular template with a set of systems, processes, and structures. And it's very easy to take that for granted and, and lose sight of where it came from and what problem or problems was all this designed to solve. And of course, kind of modern management, as we know, it starts in the late 19th century when we started to bring large groups of people to work. Uh, you think of Ford Motor Company, for example, building the world's largest manufacturing facility at the time. And as we brought all those people to work, and at that time, many of them were illiterate or very poorly educated, we needed a new kind of super class of employees to wrangle them and get them focused on the tasks at hand. And that created the demand for, you know, managers. And the first business schools, I think Wharton was the first established in the eight, uh, late 1890s, and then soon after Harvard and a, and a whole lot of other business schools. And so we developed these new credentials around, you know, managers, people who could understand a budget, who knew how to motivate people how to manage complexity and how to ensure compliance with time standards and cost standards and customer requirements and so on. And so that was kind of the birth of what you might think of as kind of managerial bureaucracy. I'll just add maybe one or two quick things to that. One of the challenges we had, in addition to training up this new kind of person to be an administrator or manager, was that 100 and more years ago, information was very expensive to move, very hard to acquire and move. 
And the simplest way of doing that was to build a pyramid where 10 employees would report up to a manager who would consolidate all of that information, report up again. So it's quite easy to see how you could end up with an organization of eight or nine layers. And literally at that time, only the people at the top had the entire picture. So that's how we end up with the superstructure of a lot of managers and administrators who are there to make sure everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. So why is it still the predominant management paradigm? I want to get to humanocracy, but I want to just before we get there, why is bureaucracy so feisty and unable to be killed? Well, I would say a couple of reasons, maybe three quick reasons, partly because it works, at least it works in a way. Bureaucracy is really built to do three things. One is to ensure control. Second was to ensure coordination, that the pieces in the organization would fit together and work together. And finally, to ensure consistency over time, that we were all aiming at the same kind of target. And again, the way we did that, though, was with these multi-layered organizations and then a lot of rules, a lot of processes and so on. And all of that is good. And in fact, if you look from, let's say, oh, 1890 or so to uh, 2020, we saw extraordinary increase in labor productivity and capital productivity. I mean, literally growing 30, 40, 50 times. And so you could argue that industrial bureaucracy was perhaps the most important human invention of all time. Because all the scientific things that were being created, whether it was electric motors or, or, or synthetic materials, plastics or automobiles, none of these things would have been available to the ordinary worker, the ordinary individual, without this capacity to bring people together to do very, very complex things in very efficient ways. So bureaucracy, I think, has been persistent, you know, because it works. I think, number two, it's been persistent because it's familiar. So as I said at the outset, most of us grow up in and around organizations that fit that bureaucratic template. And so all of those features are so familiar to us that we struggle to imagine an alternative. And I think the third reason that maybe goes more directly to the heart of the question you asked, why has this been so persistent, is that bureaucracy in a way is self-propagating. If you ask a bureaucrat, how do I solve any particular problem? The answer is all more bureaucracy, more mandates, more systems, more controls, hiring more bureaucrats, uh, creating more CXOs. So bureaucracy in a way begets bureaucracy. I mean, just like it just grows, it propagates and so on. And occasionally, you know, we come in and we, we kind of mow the lawn, we, you know, mow the dandelions off, but we don't pull up the weeds. We don't start over again. So it just grows back. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You made a point that bureaucracy worked really well for, call it the first half of the 20th century. But I also saw you quote something. Since 1983, the U.S. economy has added 3.3 managerial or administrative jobs for every non-administrative one. So it, it seems like two things. One, we're going in the wrong direction. And number two, productivity isn't getting better. What's going on? Well, the productivity thing is really a puzzle. If you look at productivity growth in the United States, we're averaging about maybe 1% or a little bit more a year, but it's not half the level that it was up until around the year 2000. And there are many different debates among economists about why this has happened. But what's, what's particularly interesting, and give me a little detour here, and I'm sorry for, for a little bit of a mini lecture here, but there, there are three things that drive productivity growth. One is more capital, so spending more on the tools that workers have that makes them more productive, so capital spending. Number two is educating workers, developing more skills among employees. And then number three is innovation of all sorts that kind of multiplies human impact. 
So if you look at this declining productivity, it's not mostly a matter of, you know, lower business investment. It's not a matter of like employees that are not smart and capable. It's mostly a fact that innovation is not making its way to the bottom line. It's not really influencing productivity. And so our hypothesis is that those positive benefits are being more than overwhelmed by this ever increasing bureaucracy. And so as you get more bureaucracy, the organization becomes more inertial, things slow down, takes longer to get a decision. Critically, you have more people who are not really accountable to the customer. Uh, it gets harder to measure performance because if I'm just managing a process somewhere, like how do I really measure the impact that person is really having and their value added? So as bureaucracy grows, our hypothesis, and the correlation is very high, a causality is a bit more difficult to demonstrate, but we think that that has a big kind of impact on the fact that so many large institutions are becoming less vital, less creative, less resilient, is just this ever-expanding bureaucracy. Yeah, so final question on, on bureaucracy, Gary. You, you've said things like it turns humans into robots. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit just on just the idea of either killing the creative spirit or reducing well-being when people lose agency and autonomy. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic goal, and it sounds kind of harsh when you say it this way, but interestingly, I think this is as true now as it was 100 years ago. The, the basic goal of bureaucracy was to turn human beings into semi-programmable machines, right? To take these obstreperous, you know, free-minded, sometimes ordinary human beings and make sure they were doing exactly what you wanted them to do. And in many ways, we succeeded at doing that. You know, bringing people, you know, bringing farmers and craftsmen into large organizations and turning them into kind of rule-following employees, that was probably the biggest mass socialization we've had in human history. And we succeeded. But we kind of over-indexed on, on the control thing. And you see this when you look at the data. So let me, let me share a bit of data from Gallup. And this is, I, I think, this is all global data. So Gallup will tell you that only one in five employees believe their opinions matter at work. You know, the average frontline employee, nobody's asking them for their point of view. One out of eight employees will tell you that they're not able to influence important decisions. Those things are kind of handed down to them. And only one out of 12 employees is able to experiment or innovate within their job. And so, you know, and then you look at the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, where 70% of jobs in the U.S. economy, and they look at this across thousands of job categories, 70% of jobs require little or no creativity. So you'll often hear somebody talk about like low-skilled uh, employees or low-skilled jobs. I think that's quite a terrible way to talk about it. What, what we mean is they're not credentialed, maybe in the way we're credentialed, but I don't believe any job is inherently, you know, low-skilled. But there are many, many jobs that are inherently low opportunity, where I have very little opportunity to learn, very little opportunity to do any more than my immediate job requires, very little financial upside. I've not been trained to think like an innovator. I've not been trained to think like a business person. So I put in this very narrow kind of role and pigeonhole there. And then, not surprisingly, I don't do much more than what people expected. So I think when you look at the data, Alan, you have to conclude that most organizations waste more human capacity than they use. That initiative and ingenuity and passion are very seldom showing up at work, particularly among those on the front lines, because we built organizations that don't expect it, that don't reward it, and that don't support it.
Yeah, well, and building on that, another Gallup thing about the frontline leader is that that individual represents 70% of the variance in, in employee engagement at the team level, which is really astonishing that that leader is that big of a factor. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that little piece of data. It's, it's really very interesting because when you explain variances in employee engagement, so globally, only about 20% of employees are engaged in their work, fully engaged, which means they are not bringing their initiative and their creativity and their passion to work. So what Gallup found was that if you look at variations in engagement, it correlates very highly. As you say, 70% of the variances are explained by the particular leader. Now, it leads to kind of an interesting question, which is like, are 70% of all leaders rubbish at their job? Are 70% tyrants? And I don't think so, but those leaders are also inside of a system that primarily rewards them for control. And there are a set of factors that work. First, if I'm a manager and I'm probably paid more, I better be seen to have the answers. I mean, the way I kind of demonstrate my value added is, you know, I, I, I put my thumb on the scales in every decision and I, I reserve a lot of authority and power to me because if I didn't, how do I justify my salary? Uh, number two, one of the biggest fears of a manager is having something go off the rails, have a variance, something's not going right on my watch. So I tend to, you know, exercise a lot of oversight, a lot of supervision, a lot of check-ins, a lot of staff meetings to make sure kind of nothing is going wrong. And that, of course, disempowers employees. But that's both the expectation managers have and that's the way they behave. So I think what Gallup would tell you is, you know, we need to retrain, you know, the vast majority of all the world's managers. I think that's partly the case, but I think the bigger question may be around, uh, and this is a little controversial, do we need those managers at all? You know, I, I've increasingly, I've started to ask myself, who needs managing and why? So those who are, you know, listening to this podcast, it'd be interesting to ask them, for them to reflect for a moment is like, do I think I need managing? And if so, like why? And I, I think for me, there are three reasons that people need managing. Number one is I don't have the competence. There's skills and things that I don't have, so you can't trust me to make really good decisions because I'm just not capable. Number two may be because I don't have the information or the context. I don't know what's going on in this other part of the organization. I don't know what the customer really wants. I don't know where we are in terms of cost, profitability. So I need somebody else to like take that information, translate it, and say, therefore, Gary, this is what you have to do. And the third thing is, I just may not be conscientious. You know, I don't kind of give a crap. So I need like an overlord to make sure I'm not, you know, screwing things up. Well, I can solve all three of those problems without managers, right? We give people better training. We teach them to think like business people and make sure they're competent. We connect them with their peers. We create an organization that's more lateral and less vertical. So I understand what are the things my colleagues are doing and how my work has to fit into that. And finally, we give them reward structures and incentives that have a substantial upside. So I really do, you know, I really do want to do something extraordinary here. So I think it's it's time we step back and ask that deeper question, like why do we believe people need managing? Are the things you can do to make those teams and individuals self-managing? Because, you know, the other interesting Gallup data is that middle managers are even less engaged than the people working for them. And they're kind of put in an impossible role because they're getting all the stuff coming down on top of them, the over-control and too many rules and so on. And then they're asked to be kind of surrogate parents to adults who probably are pretty capable of managing themselves and are not so happy with having somebody looking over their shoulder and telling them what to do. So you got to start to ask, is there an alternative here? So while, while we're on this topic, AI is all the rage right now. So even on Udemy, we have 
2 million learners taking AI courses like today, 57 million minutes of course time going on right now, 1,200 courses. The spend in tech is somewhere between four and five trillion. And 47% of tech leaders say that AI is one of their top priorities. So you must have some thoughts on how will AI and a, a leader bot co-pilot leader, how, that might be the answer to accelerating this transformation to a called a managerless or leaderless world. What do you think? You know, I certainly believe it has that promise. The internet allowed us to kind of immediately access information. What AI is going to do is to allow us to aggregate and apply knowledge and do it in very context-specific ways that are relevant to whatever problem I'm trying to solve here. It's not clear that it will create new knowledge. It's not a tool for fundamental innovation, but certainly it can take a lot of accumulated wisdom, collate that, bring it to bear on a particular thing, and, and take a lot of that kind of thinking and responsibility off. The dilemma, I think, though, with AI, like every other technology, is this that if you try to use AI within the context of that old bureaucratic model, it's not going to have a very high payoff, at least as far as management is concerned. And so what you see when you look, as we have, when you look back over decades or even hundreds of years, what you can see consistently, Alan, is that technology innovation moves way faster than organizational innovation. So a new technology makes it theoretically possible to manage in new ways, but it takes a long time you know, to understand how to use that inside of an organization. We have the tools today for large-scale collaboration. We could be doing open strategy where you are involving the entire organization in a conversation about what are the threats, what are the opportunities, what new things could we do with our competencies, what are the unmet needs of customers, what are the opportunities you see for us to innovate and grow. Almost no company, I mean literally, almost no company is using that technology to create a real-time, all-the-time conversation about where we go next as a company. Instead, strategy tends to be set top-down. It tends to be the under the control of people who have a lot of their emotional equity invested in the past. That's why virtually every large company is late to new opportunities. Uh, people on the fringes can see it. They know it's coming. They're ready to act but they're waiting for those signals to you know, penetrate six or seven or eight layers and somebody at the top to say, oh gosh, we should probably worry about this whole streaming thing that may turn out to be a big deal, for example. So today we're all familiar, you know, we've all seen this kind of radical change in business models, whether it's Tinder uh, in how people find uh, love or a temporary substitute, whether it is uh, Zoom and uh, Skype and whatever it is, how we connect. But almost all of those groundbreaking uses of technology have come from newcomers, not from the incumbents. Because the incumbents say, how do I use technology to do better what I'm already doing better? So you look at, not to pick on Marriott, but let me use Marriott, you know, world's biggest hotel chain, as an example with, you know, dozens of sub-brands. So Marriott looks at, at technology and, or AI, whatever's next down the pike, and they say, can we use this to do dynamic pricing? Can we use it to manage our rewards program? Can we use it to automate the check-in process? So they will never think of the idea to use that technology to do Airbnb, to change the fundamental definition of what a hospitality industry looks like. And I think that's the problem we have when we think about this: how this technology could impact management. That if your allegiance is to that old model and to that very hierarchical model of control, you will not see the opportunities to use this technology in a very new way. I often ask CEOs this question. Can you imagine an organization that is as different from the status quo, from that bureaucratic status quo, as Netflix is different from the BBC, from broadcast television, 
or Airbnb from Marriott, pick, pick your example. And most leaders can't really imagine that. In fact, they, they don't even really try. They just assume that what we have is about as good as it's going to get. We can tweak it at the margin, but we can't do more than that. So it's our embedded beliefs and assumptions that are limiting factors here, not technology. So if we go all the way back, you wrote a lot about the core competence of the firm. You sort of brought this into the lexicon, the learning organization, the idea of building skills and people and capabilities. And I'm wondering, your book, Humanocracy, brings us kind of a new leadership model that is anti-bureaucratic and radically different than the traditional practice of management. So can you talk about how you're thinking evolved in such a way that it led you to humanocracy? Yeah, it's for me, it's been like a seamless journey, but maybe for anybody following my work, it may be kind of a rather abrupt transition. You know, I, I was, first of all, a strategist, and I wrote a lot about strategy. And then I kind of had this realization, Alan, some people got there before I did, I'm sure. But I had this kind of dawning that the most important thing about a strategy is how it's different from every other strategy, right? And so creating strategy is essentially a matter of innovation, creating, you know, a game-changing breakthrough business model or strategy. So that kind of pushed me to think more about innovation. And then I started to think about why is innovation so difficult for most organizations? You know, the, the data says, the survey data says that 79% of leaders think innovation is a top three priority, but 94% tell you their organization isn't very good at it. Right. And so when you see this across many, many organizations, you see this same kind of innovation-phobic, intolerant attitude, and then you see that they're quite dehumanizing. Then you go like, there's something deeper going on here, right? This is not about one company, one whatever, one industry. There's a set of pathologies or disabilities that many, many organizations share. And so that really started focusing me on kind of a different set of problems and nested in the following way. And, and unfortunately, bureaucracy is antagonistic to all of these things. And the first is kind of ambition. You won't invent anything truly new unless you have a stretch goal, unless you're really trying to do something exceptional. So ambition, anything starts with uh, being willing to commit yourself to goals that lie outside the range of planning. And of course, as a bureaucrat, that's a very nervous thing. What if we don't get there? Like somebody's going to judge me on that. Somebody's going to hold me accountable to that. So you have almost the opposite thing is as a bureaucrat, you try to negotiate your targets as low as possible so you can be sure you hit them and get a bonus. And bureaucracies are rife with, with, with ADD, with ambition deficit disorder. Just, they don't aim, aim in that way. Now, the second thing is I need an organization that can reinvent itself, that has an evolutionary advantage, that changes as fast as the world around it, that's always looking for new opportunities, that's expanding laterally, that never takes refuge in denial, that rushes out to meet the future, that reallocates resources very quickly as away from you know legacy things into new things. But that you won't you won't change in that way. You won't change preemptively, proactively unless you have that ambition, unless you have something worth changing for. Now, of course, if I want to have a very resilient organization, I need a lot of innovation because innovation is the fuel for renewal. Without a lot of new ideas, how do I evolve something? Finally, as we were talking about earlier, you don't get innovation unless people are inspired to come to work every day, 
with their initiative and their passion and the sense that they're doing something extraordinary. And bureaucracy fails at every level. It fails at the level of ambition. It tends to be very good at doing the same things over and over again. It has very few rewards for true innovation, people who challenge orthodoxy and break the rules and take risks. And as we talked about, it's fundamentally disempowering. So it was that kind of journey from strategy is important, the most important strategies that are innovative, we need a lot more innovation and the ability to reinvent strategies dynamically as we go along. And finally, you get down to the root of the root and say, wow, human beings are ambitious. We, we All the time, we set ourselves big goals. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get an education. I'm going to start a family. Big, big, tough things we do. We're immensely resilient, as we saw through COVID. We're endlessly creative. You only have to look at the 38 million channels on YouTube, right? All that latent creativity waiting to burst forth when you have the tools, the platforms to do it. And we are passionate. We're inspired. We inspire each other. We love reading stories, learning from people who've done extraordinary things. So what became more and more clear to me was that human beings already had the most important capabilities our organizations lack. And that while in some ways our organizations exceeded us, none of us individually can launch a spacecraft, but in other ways our organizations were much less capable than we were. And I think that was largely thanks to this bureaucratic tendency to dehumanize work and uh, uh, so on. And so the book is really about how do we build organizations that are as capable as as we are as individuals. And for that to happen, bureaucracy has to die. So in the book, you you go through seven key principles, but I love the concept of first principles. You know, Elon Musk, I think he, when he was designing a rocket, he goes to first principles and says, it, the cost of all the materials to make a rocket is 2%. So like, where's the other 98? And by building up from there, he was able to do something that was really an astonishing feat that nobody in the aerospace industry would have ever thought possible. We'll never get to all of these, Gary, but I'd love to do, for example, markets. You say a market economy is better than centrally planned, where a small number at the top make decisions, right? We know how strategy works. We know hierarchy. We know it's the predominant thing. And organizations struggle to to tap into this distributed intelligence of markets? Well, let me preface this just by a very simple point. In any field of endeavor, sooner or later, you're at a place where you need new principles and not only new practices and processes. And so one of the things I got very curious about is it's not like we haven't tried a lot of new things in our organizations over the last 50, 60 years. We have. And depending on how much gray hair and how far back you can go, we had, you know, T groups and high performance work systems and job enrichment. And then we come up, you know, more recently, you know, agile teams, all of the DEI initiatives and so on. All of these things have a logic, right? All of them are are good in some way. And yet none of them have really made much of a difference to the vitality of our organizations. And so you start to ask why, and, and you understand the, the problem is we keep taking these new processes and principles, and we try to graft them onto the old bureaucratic rootstock. And, you know, I use the analogy, it's like putting a tutu on a dog and hoping it will become a ballerina. And, you know, a new tool, a new process, we're just dressing these old things up. And what we need is new DNA. The old principles, standardization, specialization, routinization, formalization, those have a certain merit, but for sure they're not enough if you want to build resilience and speed and daring into an organization. So that's why we focused on principles. And often, like, I, I'm impatient with that. I just want to go and, like, tell me what to do. I think that's the wrong starting point. And indeed, even when you go look at some of these vanguard companies we talk about, like Hire, for example, 
The important thing when you study them is not to look at what they're doing, not mostly, it's to understand how they think. So what do you have to believe or what principle do you start with if you end up with something that looks like this? So let's talk about the markets thing for a moment. So you're, you're right that over time, markets outperform hierarchies. And that's because markets aggregate the wisdom of many, many people who together are smarter than any small group of CEOs at the top. Now, the dilemma is that, you know, most organizations systematically overinvest in what is at the expense of what could be. And the reason is resource allocation, right? How much do we invest here, there, or somewhere else tends to be a top-down decision. And so there's several implications that come from that. First of all, a problem or an opportunity has to be quite big before it will capture the scarce attention of the CEO or somebody at the top. So, you know, by the time it comes up and penetrates, and particularly if it's unusual or challenges the existing business model, that's going to be a long, torturous journey before somebody says, oh, crap, yes, we really have to do that. So, so that means that almost always these big resource moves are, are late. The second problem you have is that those conversations about where do we invest how much tends to be dominated by people running the legacy businesses. And they're always going to tell you your best bet is to put more money behind what we're already doing. So they have a huge inbuilt advantage. The status quo has powerful sponsors. What's new and different, you know, is often kind of goes begging. That's the second problem. I think the third uh, challenge is that we often expect each new initiative, each new project to have like a 90% chance of success. And so it's very hard in any organization, if you have something that's truly new, that maybe only has a 10% chance of working, you can never admit that. So you have to pretend it's better or it's going to get washed out if somebody kind of sees through. But we're not very good at building like portfolios of initiatives where, you know, the returns on the portfolio will be very good, even though individual new initiatives may die. And that's the logic of Silicon Valley and venture capital. You fund a dozen, hoping one has a breakout success. So for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, resource allocation is just really slow and cumbersome and politicized. So then you say, okay, can we do this in a different way? Let me give you another example from a very large pharmaceutical company. They took the whole resource allocation problem away from EVPs and head of strategy and CFO and so on. And they went down to the, the teams leading the actual businesses, the different drug therapeutic categories in this pharmaceutical company. And they said, all right, you guys have to come together and using common tools, we want you to evaluate the success, the prospects for every single one of our drugs. And we're also gonna like calculate how many resources we have. What can we spend on marketing? What can we spend on customer support? And then they made it incumbent on those teams working horizontally to negotiate with each other and make sure the best resources were going to the best opportunities. And you had to convince your peers that, you know, there was more growth, more profitability here. Therefore, I need more salespeople, more marketing people. But it was all data driven. It was all transparent. You know, it wasn't because you were friends of the CEO or you were managing the biggest legacy business that you got extra resources. It was because you had to make that data-based argument in a competitive environment and everybody gets to vote on where those resources go are going and everybody's incentives are driven by the success of the entire company and not just their business. So there are many ways to start to apply that market thinking to how we allocate talent or capital or anything else or how I knew is, new ideas get funded. But I don't think we'll have fundamentally more capable organizations until we start with a different set of principles. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for how to get started, not at the CEO level, but 
grassroots, frontline? Like, can we do it in our department, our unit, maybe our region of the world? We have a smaller area that we can go try this. Are people doing that? How do we get started in it all? That's a super good question, Alan, because as you kind of hinted at the beginning, if you wait for bureaucrats to uninstall bureaucracy, it can be a long wait. <laughs> so one of the challenges I've been very interested in, I'll try to speak to is, how do you change the system when you don't own the system? When you don't have a C in front of your title? How do you change the system when nobody's asked you to change the system? Well, you have to think of yourself like, like a hacker. Not like the bad kinds of hackers who steal your credit card data, but the good kind of hackers that are on GitHub and other platforms that are building software, right? They're like, how do I make Linux better every year? And I think there's two challenges in doing that. First of all, a lot of people in the middle of organizations have a learned helplessness, right? It's just like, you know, okay, I, this budgeting process doesn't work at all. It's so difficult. I don't know how to change it. What can I do? I'm not, right? And you just, you just give up and you, you stew in your frustration. The other problem is that we assume that if we're going to change one of these deeply embedded complex processes, it's all or nothing, right? You either have to step back, completely redesign it, top down, think it all through, perfect it, and then you roll it out or you're stuck. So I like to challenge both of those things, that, that I'm helpless and that I can't do this without like blowing up what's already there. So one of the things that in, in my teaching at the London Business School and the work we do with organizations, we try to help people learn how to hack the management system. And what that really means is looking within your team, within your business, whatever your scope of permissions is, and actually saying, okay, what can I change here as an experiment? Don't blow up what's already there. Don't violate any ethical or legal or whatever rules, but could we experiment with something that might help us validate a new way of managing or organizing? I'll give you a couple of very quick examples. One, and this was in a large uh, fashion company, somebody said, we should use crowdfunding internally. We should take a proportion of our budget every year and we should just give that money to everybody, divide it up among everybody and let them vote and fund the projects they think will have an impact. So I think it's a good idea. But if you start by saying, let's go do this and take 20% of our budget every year, like heads explode and you have the CTO and the CFO giving you all the reasons maybe it can't be done. So what happened in this case is they ran a little experiment in one unit, uh, 60 people in this unit, I think. And they gave each one of those people 150 bucks and said, you're going to use that to fund ideas from your peers. Without any technology, they just created a little simple template. Here's my idea. Here's the resources it will take. Here's the outcome, I think. And you could fill out that template, put it on a wall, and then your colleagues could write post-its and challenge that. I don't understand. Can you expand? And then they had a set of conversations. And at the end of 30 days, they asked people to go put their money behind the best ideas. And it happened. They funded several ideas. And everybody agreed these are quite brilliant, but they weren't in the budget already. So that experiment, little lo-fi, 30-day, few thousand dollar experiment was enough to convince the organization that crowdfunding is really a good idea and that we should kind of start to think about how to do this, right? So that was one leader in one team saying, I can do this without blowing anything up. I'll give you another example. This is a, in an, an, another large pharmaceutical company, uh, a group of middle-level managers who are very frustrated by the company's travel policies that told you which airline to fly on, which hotels to stay in, how much you can spend every day. Even as a relatively senior person, you had to get another manager's approval to take a business trip. They said, this is nonsense. So here's the little experiment they ran. They took two groups of 100 people, I think one at head office, one at a division, and they said, for the next 30 days, 
There are no rules on travel at all. You travel anytime you want, go anywhere you want. If you want to fly first class on Emirates Airlines, no problem. But we do need receipts. But nobody's going to audit this and there are no rules. By the way, they said, we're going to publish all of your travel expenses online so everybody can see them. So the hypothesis they were testing was transparency may be a better mechanism of control than a lot of rules on auditing. And of course, what they found in that, you know, in the treatment group there was that travel costs went down, engagement went up. Well, that's a simple little hack for 30 days, right? There's, it's going to make no difference in a large organization. And so I, you know, my, my plea to all of your listeners here would be like, start to think like that. Think like, how do I hack this system? Get your team together, start to ask, where's bureaucracy interfering with our ability to move quickly and to do the right thing? How do we change that? And see if you can't build a little hack. And my experience is when you do this, you know, sometimes you won't find anything interesting, fine, no loss. But if it has a positive impact, people are going to beat a path to your door because everybody is frustrated with the same problems. Everybody knows something needs to change. And if you're kind of a pioneer there, you are going to get a lot of positive attention. So, you know, I, and, and indeed, I think that's the way you change big, complicated things, right? You don't change them by blowing the old thing up, by some grand top-down redesign. What I tell CEOs is you need every middle manager, you need every person in your organization to think like this and to say, how do I start building the kind of organization we want right here, right now, in my space? And then once I've learned something, let's talk about it and share it. So Gary, that that was just a beautiful kind of run on hacking management. And I love the idea of these lo-fi experiments, doing it without authority, without a C in front of your title. So as we wrap up here, and thank you so much for your time, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? Well, certainly what I'm most curious about, I mean, I understand how difficult it is to change a deeply embedded social system. And, you know, bureaucracy is a deeply embedded social system. It's the most ubiquitous social technology in the world. Uh, and so what I'm trying to learn from, you might be surprised, I'm learning by, you know, how, how do we get beyond aristocracy? How did the abolitionist movement started? How do we tackle slavery? How do we tackle patriarchy? But what does it take to change deeply embedded systems? And more recently, how do we tackle climate change? Because I, th I think the challenge of de-bureaucratizing you know, the world's economy, we need institutions that are way more ambitious, resilient, and creative than the ones we have right now. The question is, how do you do a whole-scale, large-scale change of a very deeply embedded social system and move on to something that's better. So I'm spending a lot of time looking backwards, actually, and understanding how do you build the incentives, the capabilities, the energy, the willingness to do this? How do we hold leaders accountable? And I'll have something to say about that next year, but I'm really working hard to learn, you know, how do, how do we come together to solve these really human and global scale challenges? That's beautiful. And I love how you start by going straight to the history books just a beautiful way to think. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. A great pleasure, Alan. Thank you for give, giving me the time to share a few things I care about. Thanks again to Gary Hamill for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. 
to learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.